Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Mission Sustainable podcast. My name is Greg Chong, and this is my co-host, Jaime Ozaita. We're here today with Mr. Kevin Punzalan, who works as a Senior Policy Officer for Economic and Public Affairs at the Embassy of the Kingdom of the Netherlands, right here in the Philippines. He's here to discuss climate change and its relation with transportation and the economy. Thank you, Gregory, uh, for the introduction. So good afternoon to everybody. I thought I would begin uh, today's session by giving you a brief overview of what exactly the Netherlands does for sustainable transport and why exactly its, its culture, particularly its cycling culture, are unique and are an interesting model for cities around the world to emulate. So what I wanted to present to you all today was to discuss the Dutch cycling culture, the the polder model, and how that approach is a holistic and consultative way to build cycling communities. Along the way, I will be discussing, of course, uh, what the Dutch concept of active mobility and sustainable transport is. I will also be looking into some of the things that our embassy is doing to help promote this uh, in the Philippines. So one thing that people often comment when they when they look at the Netherlands today is they always think that it was always a cycling country or that it was always especially considerate of non-motorized transport. Now, this may come as, as a surprise to many people, but actually Dutch cities were becoming very car-centric in the 60s and 70s. And it was becoming a lot like the, the cities that we know today, for example, cities in the Philippines, which are also extremely car-centric. So what's important to understand is that the Netherlands became a cycling country and a country that appreciated sustainable transport as a gradual process through the decades from the 1970s to the present. And what's also important to know is that that change didn't come about uh, out of thin air. It was the result of the government and civil society uh, mutually working together to make cities friendlier to cyclists. So in case you don't believe me, let me show you some pictures from the past and the present. So this picture is of the Katarine single. This is the former moat that set that uh, circles the city of Utrecht, which is one of the most important cities of the Netherlands. That was a 12 lane multi-car, uh, 12 uh, car lane uh, highway that was very wide and as you can see, uh, not very friendly uh, for pedestrians or cyclists or any other form of non-motorized transport. And this photo, mind you, dates from 1977, not too long ago. Now, here's how it looks like today. That's exactly the same spot, that building on the right. You can actually see the corner of it in the previous photo. That's exactly the same spot. They have rebuilt the moat. They have built parkways uh, surrounding the canal bank and cycle paths and pedestrian paths lining it as well. And as a result, the whole area has become more of a park rather than a transportation artery from first glance, but it actually moves more people now because it allows people to take cycling, to walk, even to boat along it compared to before. So what are some of the other factors that help change uh, the way people look at mobility in the Netherlands? Uh, first, there was a movement that began in the 1972 in Amsterdam 
where parents noticed there was an increasing number of children that were getting into accidents with cars in the city. Mind you, Amsterdam is an old city with narrow streets, and the Dutch children would often cycle or walk to their neighborhood schools. And many of them started getting into accidents with cars. So a movement uh, called the Kindermord movement, or in English, Don't Touch My Children, uh, began to make motorists slow down and become more aware that they have to share the street with others. This was complemented by the formation in 1975 of an interest group or an advocacy group called the, the Cyclists' Union. Uh, the Cyclists' Union at first advocated for road safety policies to make the roads more safer for, for cyclists, but eventually they've become a comprehensive lobby group in actually setting not only road safety standards, but also encouraging the government to remake cities to be more cycle friendly. In fact, today, uh, there are members of the Dutch parliament that are also representatives of the cyclist union. Now, let's talk about the cycling culture in the Netherlands and what helps maintain it. The thing about the Netherlands is that from a very young age, Dutch children are taught to uh, learn how to cycle and to learn how to become independent using a bicycle. So in the Netherlands, most children are not brought by their parents to school after a very young age. So for example, by age ages eight or seven, they're already learning to cycle to school by themselves. So from a very young age, they're taught to understand the rules of the road and the schools themselves also support this effort. There's also a strong culture in the Netherlands that encourages people to use active transport for a number of reasons. The first is that uh, there are environmental reasons for not taking cars and to take either cycles or to combine cycling with using public transport. And then most importantly, the urban planning system in the Netherlands gives priority to moving people over cars. In the Philippines, uh, urban planners often refer to transport corridors in terms of how many vehicles can move per hour. Whereas in the Netherlands, it's not about the vehicles you move, it's the number of people you move per hour. And often, bicycles can move more people per hour than cars, even if they travel at a lower speed. How many people can fit on a one, uh, on, a, on a five squ uh, square meter section of roadway versus a car? And you can have maybe one, two, three, maybe seven or eight people in a five square meter space, or with cars, you would have maybe at most four people. So this is an active reason why uh, the Dutch cycling culture is very strong. And what exactly does that culture entail? First, it sets a hierarchy that first, the term, in terms of who should be served first by transport, it is pedestrians, uh, cyclists, and then car users. And more importantly, even if there is a hierarchy, they also designed their infrastructure to allow uh, for space sharing between these different modes of transport. And in order to create that culture, they have basically three components that make that possible. And this is important. There is the software, the hardware, and the orgware. The software is all about uh, policies, laws. So these look at road safety, these look at ordinances for urban planning, these look at um, education programs for cyclists. So it's, it's about making people, uh, or rather equipping people with the right knowledge both as users of the road and as builders and planners 
of their cities. Secondly, hardware is important, and this comes in in the design of the physical infrastructure. There are many examples of this. Uh, for example, uh, the design of intersections, which actually have dedicated crossing and turning spaces for cyclists, which actually encourage cars to take notice and to actually stop for cyclists and for pedestrians. So design plays an important role. Traffic calming measures also help, like uh, making a road narrower to force cars to slow down. If you want them to go at 30 kilometers per hour, you narrow the street so that the speed discourages people from speeding. You put street furniture as well to make drivers aware that they have to share the space with other users of the road. And finally, the last component is orgware, which is a combination of networking together the right people to discuss these issues like urban planners, uh, municipal planners, private real estate developers, and technical experts. But it also includes creating institutions that actually help make whatever uh, changes you institute permanent. So one good example of that is a special institution called the Dutch Cycling Embassy. Despite its name, it's not an embassy of the Netherlands, but what it actually is is a federation of more than uh, 30 different private, public, and academic institutions that help bring together the best knowledge for cycling and urban planning in the Netherlands to the rest of the world. So when you combine all of those components, you create a self-reinforcing system that encourages the Dutch people to use sustainable transport. So what are some of the results of us working in, in, in this sector and putting these solutions in the country? The embassy has been able to identify niches for technical knowledge in cycling and urban planning in the Philippines. And a good example of that is the work we're doing now with private real estate developers such as Ayala and SM. The picture you see there is of Ayala Avenue, and that's a picture of the new dedicated bike lane that has been placed along its length. What, may, what you may not know is that the design of that was the result of direct input from the Dutch Cycling Embassy to the Makati Commercial Estate Association. Originally, the Masaya actually wanted to put that bike lane on the second lane where those motorbikes are, which would have been dangerous because buses would still use the innermost lane. And if cyclists wanted to turn right or if motorists wanted to turn right, to exit this road, they would cross directly into the paths of the cyclists and thus expose them to accidents. Now, in the innermost lane, the cyclists can turn right without coming into conflict with other forms of traffic, and the buses, now on the second lane, can disembark their passengers at, dedicate, at designated spots. And the cyclists would, would stop for them, and even if they don't, and even if, let's say, there was an accident, the, a collision between a cyclist and a pedestrian is far less likely to result in fatalities than a collision between a bus or a car and a cyclist. So as such, uh, the embassy has become a node for different stakeholders in both the private sector, the public sector, including local governments and civil society. And by doing so, we hope to achieve concrete results for sustainable transport. So here's some examples of our strategy. For the public sector, uh, local, especially focusing on the level of local government, we help offer capacity building activities to train them in equipping them with the necessary skills and, and technical knowledge they would need to build cycling friendly infrastructure. And we also advise them on what kind of design standards to use. 
So for example, in the Netherlands, uh, cycling paths are paved, not painted, with red asphalt. So the red asphalt is an instantly recognizable signal to pedestrians and motorists that that is a cycling path. You should take care when crossing it. And more importantly, red asphalt is not like paint, where paint has to be renewed every number of years because it fades from use. With red asphalt, well, un until the asphalt literally degrades, it will always be red. So we advise local governments on some of the technical standards that the Netherlands uses. For the private sector, we offer education campaigns, and we also offer commission capacity building activities. And we also offer networking activities between Dutch technical experts and their counterparts in the private sector here. And lastly, for civil society, uh, we help create consultations on needs and sustainable transport in the Philippines. We help organize networking and coalition building activities to bring all the different stakeholders in, in sustainable transport together. And lastly, we also uh, lend our support to advocacy campaigns that advocate for safer and more sustainable cities. So here's an example of uh, some of those activities. This was an, a workshop a, called a Think Bike Workshop held in Iloilo City in October of 2019. Here, we brought together cycling advocates, urban planners, and representatives from the private sector to actually develop a route map uh, for cycling routes in Iloilo City. Now, aside from being a capacity building activity, the workshop also filled a second purpose, an unstated purpose. You see, before the activity, all of these actors had previously not been talking to one another. Civil society was lobbying the government to adopt an infrastructure. The government was planning, but did not initially welcome the input of civil society. So our function as an embassy was to bring all these people together into mixed groups and to actually encourage them to discuss their problems in one forum. And as a result, they were able to come to an agreement about the cycling paths. And what impressed me the most uh, after this activity was even though the map they created was ambitious, if you look at the map of, of cycling routes in Iloilo City today, it has gone far beyond what was initially planned in this room. And that was beyond what we had asked them to do. So that kind of consensus building is also an important part of the work that the embassy does for sustainable transport. And what we like to do together, as I mentioned in the very beginning of the presentation is, we like consensus building. That's actually uh, a Dutch concept called the polder model. Polders are the plots of land that the Dutch reclaim from the sea to create farms. And that's basically what you see in that picture. To build a polder, you have to bring together all sectors of society. You have to bring together landowners, government officials, you need to bring together technical experts, and most importantly, you have to bring them into a room and openly discuss the common challenge together and to come to an agreement before you build anything. Because the Dutch believe that it's only through consensus that you can achieve something that is lasting and generates real results. So they would rather spend more time discussing and building consensus before building, because when they do eventually decide to build, there is an agreement and it's less likely to get derailed. Yes, yeah, so you mentioned a lot of interesting things about 
how biking and bike lanes and the culture of bicycling in the Netherlands has helped a lot to create safer roads and cleaner forms of transportation. So um, I was wondering what steps they took in the Netherlands in terms of working with the private sector of, for example, car companies, the industry for transportation, particularly in the private sector, to have them sort of cooperate in projects like that. Because I feel like in the Philippines, there's a lot of um, aspects of the private sector that may be contributing to, for example, the volume of cars on the streets. And I was wondering what kind of model they followed in the Netherlands to help regulate that. Thank you, Gregory. Uh, that's a complex question. And let's, I think we need to unpack it. So let's try to focus first on uh, policy for private car use in the Netherlands. First and foremost, uh, car ownership in the Netherlands is, is first highly regulated, which means that after you purchase your first car, the costs of annual um, ownership rapidly uh, increase based on the number of cars you have. This is the reason why most Dutch people have no more than two cars at most, because it's restrictively expensive to own more than two. Secondly, uh, there are policies that govern the use of cars in cities. So there are areas, for example, of the Netherlands where private car use is not allowed, especially in the most historic districts of the old cities where the roads were not designed for cars in the first place. So that's basically the stick aspect. You know, they, they restrict car usage in inner city streets. Uh, parking spaces are expensive. Um, there's a lot of uh, incentives for you, on the other hand, to use public transport and cycling in those inner cities. So Dutch people have become used to the idea that you use your cars to get from city to city if you want to, or to travel beyond where the trains and buses can take you. But otherwise, for daily transport, you use a bus, you use a train, or you use your bicycle, or a combination of the three. Now, in terms of collaboration more broadly, uh, the Netherlands also has a, a special institution called a top sector. So this is like a, a working group comprised of a, a ministry that's responsible for the sector. For example, the Ministry of Transportation. It includes the leading private sector companies active in that sector, and it also includes academic institutions. And together, these top sectors identify where to move their sector for the future, what kind of research and development uh, strategies to implement, and also collaborate on what kinds of policies they'd like to focus on. So I'll, I'll give an example in another sector, in, in energy. In top sector energy, the Netherlands is actively looking at how to reuse the heat generated by industrial facilities to keep cities warm. And take note, I'm not saying buildings, cities. So this is an idea called district heating, where you basically use the heat generated by industrial process to uh, warm entire sectors of a city uh, using pipes, using other conductive materials. So for transportation, uh, a new top sector is actually being formed for cycling. And it hopes to also identify the future course for cycling and sustainable transport in the Netherlands. Thank you for that. So you touched a bit on the economic upsides of 
using public transportation or cycling, but could you expound on more of the economic downsides of using things like cars or private transportation? Or, and maybe expound even more on the upsides of using cycling and public transportation and stuff like that in the Philippines? Okay, well, for the Philippine case, uh, I'm sure all of you have heard that oft-quoted figure that in Metro Manila alone, the economy loses about 2 billion pesos a day to traffic congestion. And that's just for one urban area. So think of, of, of what the opportunity cost of losing 2 billion pesos is for nothing, essentially. You're losing time, you're losing productivity, you're losing uh, opportunities to do more with that time in a day. And we're talking here about the whole economy, starting from the large conglomerates all the way down to the individual level. And the reason that is the case is because Metro Manila is a city that hasn't had any uh, holistic or comprehensive urban planning implemented at least until since the 1960s. So private real estate developers have been basically given a free hand to build cities the way they want. And as a result, we have massive traffic congestion. Why is there congestion? Number of reasons. First of all, our, our, our public transport system, our mass public transport system has very limited, is, is, has very limited accessibility for the majority of citizens of Metro Manila. The mass transport lines only follow the major road arteries of the city. They don't yet penetrate into denser neighborhoods. Our last mile is where the greatest challenge is because while we do have some heavy rail, the, tra the transition from heavy rail to where you actually get to your destination, you have to use a combination of buses, which are often not filled to capacity because there are a lot of companies competing for the same routes, which is a very unique situation. It's not the case in most of the world where uh, there is service contracting, where companies basically have to service routes. And then beyond that, if you want to go where the buses can't take you, you have to take a jeepney, which is an even older and more inefficient form of transportation. And then to get your last mile, some people would even resort to taking a tricycle. Why? because Manila streets are not built for walking. It's not just a matter of climate. You know, we know that Manila is a tropical city beset by monsoons, but there are other cities that are exactly the same. I mean, even Singapore has a worse climate than Manila, but they have excellent walking facilities. So the fact that the average citizen of Metro Manila has to, has to depend on wheeled transport from beginning to end greatly contributes to congestion. And the fact that if you do, let's say, have some money, most people are thus incentivized to buy a car because public transport is an arduous and uncertain process in the Philippines. And because most people now have to own more than one car, thanks to our, the, the, the UVRRP, the Universal Vehicle Road Reduction Program, that actually results in more car space being occupied by cars because most Filipinos don't have a garage to park their car in. They will park it on the street. So it's a mixture of many factors, many parents contributing to the symptom, which is traffic congestion. But the effects, as I mentioned, are massive, not just for the economy, but also for air quality, for your actual health and lifespan. 
because if you're exposed 24-7 to dirty vehicle emissions that have sulfur, that have lead, that have nitrous oxide, that actually shortens your life. That increases public health expenditures for when you become older. The state will have to spend more to take care of sick people. So the effects are massive. Now, going to the other side of the, uh, the equation, what happens if you invest in sustainable transport? First, you result in more efficient transport pathways, which will boost the economy and boost productivity. You conversely increase the lifespan of people because you have cleaner air. And then by investing in sustainable transport, you also reduce the number of cars on the roadways, which frees up space space that could be used by buses, by trains, by cyclists, or pedestrians, allowing you to move more people in a day. So in a nutshell, that's basically the value proposition uh, for sustainable transport. So uh, yeah, thank you very much. So how would a city like Metro Manila take its first steps towards um, creating a more efficient transport system that would both benefit the people and the economy? Okay, there are a number of answers to this because there's actually more than one way to do it. But I will share the way that we've been working because it's the way that we see has worked. So pardon me if I don't go into the other ways, but I think this is the one that's most relevant. So we believe in organic change. This is why we want to work with local governments because local governments are the unit uh, of government that are most sensitive to the opinions of their population because they know uh, almost instinctively that if they do not cater to the needs of their population, they will not survive after the next election. So by working with local governments, what we try to do is to find out first, what are their sustainable transport needs? Do they need more cycling paths? Is there a need for multimodal facilities? or end-of-trip facilities like bike parking, showers, lockers, etc. We then work with advocacy groups for sustainable transport that are active in that local government. Together, we discuss what the needs are uh, of, that, of that community. And then we then create capacity building activities to educate those urban planners, to educate other local officials so that they can be encouraged then invest in sustainable transport systems, technologies, and programs. So we want them to take ownership. We want them to actually choose to invest in sustainable transport. And we help them by giving them the knowledge and tools that they need. So interestingly, in, in contrast to a lot of other countries, which usually offer bilateral development aid, which comes with its own consultancies, with its own services, we prefer to let the local government identify what resources it will use for this, often from its own coffers, and then we work with what they have. Because we believe that in creating that kind of relationship that's based on collaboration rather than dependency, it's something that's more sustainable over the long term. It's something that they will eventually take ownership for and want to continue because it's also as much theirs as it is ours. We were just wondering um, what specific steps are being implemented right now 
in Metro Manila, or let's say Metro Manila in particular, to work towards that goal? Okay, for cycling specifically, because we know that sustainable transport has a lot of components. There's heavy rail, light rail, bus transportation, and then we put in cycling in that. We also consider uh, walking facilities to get allow people to get to their last mile. So there's, that's a very broad spectrum, but I will focus on the work that's being done for cycling. So first of all, uh, our embassy has invested in organizing webinars and workshops for urban planners working for the, the 17 cities and municipalities of Metro Manila. And we've also done the same for all the urban units of the island of Cebu. So by doing so, we have aimed to equip these urban planners with the standards, with the perspectives, and with the skills to properly design first the routes of these cycling pathways the design of the cycling pathways and the supporting policies, especially in, in, when it comes to road safety, to complement that infrastructure. We have also uh, we are also planning a series of activities for the next uh, semester, where we are going to be working together with the private sector, specifically the Makati Business Club, to work with the private sector and identify what their sustainable transport needs are. How are people getting to their offices? What mode are they using? What are the challenges they encounter? What facilities can their employers provide that would help them get to their office safer and more sustainably? From there, we're going to take those inputs and feed them into the, the uh, planning process of the LGUs so that the LGUs can design transport policies that directly respond to these needs. So that's what we're trying to do. And that's what's happening right now at the local level. More broadly, at the national level, the Department of Transportation, uh, Public Works and Highways, Health, and Interior and Local Government have come together and signed a joint administrative order. It's called 2020-01. It's the, it's the active transport uh, agreement. So basically, these four departments are going to be collaborating to develop cycling infrastructure nationwide. I really like how you mentioned about um, the steps taken in the local government level, because I feel like communication between the industries and the different constituents of the sector is definitely a problem in addressing such a large problem. Like, and it's great that the embassy and um, your work is um, going towards increasing communication between those groups, among those groups, and um, ensuring that we can work towards a common goal and figure out a solution for these problems. So we are approaching the end of our time for this podcast. So are there any final thoughts or closing remarks you'd like to share? Well, there's one important message I'd like to share, and, and that is especially for those working in civil society or for you uh, as young students. The change in the Netherlands came about as a result of activism, as a result of direct engagement with policymakers by people who wanted safer and more sustainable cities. So in the Philippines, a lot of the changes that have happened in our cities were not the result of activism. They were the result either of private interest or conversely of neglect. So if we want to have a better city, it's important to get people active and interested and engaged with their local leaders with the private sector and with academic institutions to actually make that difference. 
And it's surprising. I've met so many people uh, in civil society, in the academia, and even in the private sector who do want to build bigger cities. Large conglomerates like SM, Philinvest, Ayala Land, they're actually interested in making their facilities more friendly to cyclists. From a self-interested perspective, of course, because it brings them more customers and more business, but overall that benefits the whole of society, not just them. So the message I'd like to leave you with is that if you want a better city, you have to take a direct hand in making it a better city. Engage with people, engage with institutions, and in turn, they will respond to you. Change will not come instantly, as the Netherlands example illustrated, but change will come. And once it's there, it can't go away. Thank you very much, um, Mr. Kevin. And thank you to all of our listeners for following our Mission Sustainable podcast. This is, by the way, our final episode. So thank you for listening along with us and um, to all of our guest speakers and all of the environmental related topics that we discussed. We hope you learned a lot about how to take care of the environment and how to take, um, how to create a more sustainable society, especially in today's more urban communities.